Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Today, we've got Ben Murphy on the show. Ben is a partner and multifamily broker at Tilbury Ferguson. He is going to talk to us about his journey starting out as a broker and becoming a multifamily investor. He will also share how he developed key relationships with brokers and the daily activities that give the best return on his time. We'll hear great advice on how to get started in the real estate game. So let's welcome Ben Murphy. All right. I just want to welcome Ben Murphy. Ben is a broker and partner at Tilbury Ferguson and specializing in multifamily apartments, actually here in Portland. So Ben... Thank you so much for being on the show. Do you want to start off by telling us maybe a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Chris and AJ, thanks for having me. It's good to see you both. I started out in multifamily appraisal out of college in 2011. Tough kind of job market at that point, still kind of coming on the tail ends of that great recession. So I worked in appraisal for about four years, realized I didn't want to be an appraiser filling out 60 to 150 page appraisal reports most of the day was sort of bland, but a great start. Underwriting, valuation, pro forma, modeling, you know, DCF analysis, direct cap tables, different ways to analyze properties and value them. And this was all apartments that we were doing. So in 2014, I moved over to brokerage with Liz Tilbury, kind of started out as a junior broker. And then, you know, I guess was holding up my end of the bargain and bringing in enough new business and deals that a couple of years ago, we kind of ended up restructuring and I'm really a partner and we're 50-50 now. And yeah, it's been a blast transitioning into this and kind of building the business on the brokerage side. So kind of great timing to start an appraisal and then move into brokerage started in 2011. What do you think all of that work you put in as an appraiser, how do you think that turned out for working in multifamily as a broker? Honestly, Chris, it's kind of a good and a bad thing. As a broker, you're always kind of selling upside, right? Potential rents, you know? So, and as an appraiser, they're relying on historical data typically, right? Sales comps, they're really hammering the current rent roll, the actuals, you know? So it's sort of a different way of modeling valuations compared to how a broker would. But at the end of the day, I think it's really helped give me a lot of, I guess, validity or knowledge to my client base to kind of just say, hey, I've got this background. I can look at this property these different ways. And some owners do need, you know, do need to kind of be politely reminded and have a coming to Jesus moment on what their buildings are actually worth. You know, and you have brokers in town that'll just tell, you know, an, an owner anything they want to hear. This building's worth the stars and the moon just to get a listing, right? And it doesn't sell. And I honestly truly believe it's not in the client's best interest at times to just puff things constantly and tell them what they want to hear. So I think that was definitely valuable, but I do have to make sure to balance that with also being positive because as a broker, you are supposed to try to do right by your owner and get them the highest value possible. So 
there's kind of a hybrid model there, but it's definitely helped. The tightrope act. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So being a real estate investor, AJ and I like, and trying to break into multifamily has been, you know, an extremely difficult task for us because I feel like the relationships in multifamily are just so tight knit and they're already formed and very, very strong. So what was your experience like trying to break into multifamily back in 2014? Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Portland is a really pricey market to start. And if you're a broke college student with student loans coming out of a $12 an hour appraisal job, basically the way I started was with a duplex in 2014. And I essentially house hacked. It's a duplex in Cedar Hills, three bed, one and a half bath units with a garage each. And I looked at it really like bare bones, guys. I said, can this pay for my mortgage? It could. I had a roommate and then obviously I rented the other half and it was cash flowing about 200 a month after PITI, principal interest, taxes, and insurance. That's where I really started. And I lived there two years, saved money because I wasn't paying any rent or a mortgage and was able to then buy my first fiveplex in 2016 or maybe early 2017. So yeah, that's how I started. Kind of humble beginnings, but I think you find a lot of people that have big portfolios now started out in a similar fashion at one point. Yeah. So that's on your investor side and I'm excited to dive deeper into that. But, you know, as far as like being a broker and working for Tilbury Ferguson, what was it like being an investor has a little bit of a different dynamic than being a broker. And I know that brokers in a multifamily market or just like sector of real estate, like the relationships with apartment owners and with apartment buyers are like the golden geese out there or so. So what do you feel like is a key to success in developing those relationships? Well, I mean... I think number one is just integrity. I think there's a lot of brokers in our market, Portland specifically, and I won't name specific shops. I mean, it's a small town, right? But they, you know, I kind of hit on this a little earlier. I mean, it's just providing good customer service, staying in touch with people, you know, and handling a transaction like you're the buyer or you're the seller. I think if you can put yourself in their shoes as a broker, that's huge because, it's easy as a broker when you're getting paid a fee at the end of the day to kind of like think about the commission and forget about what this might mean to the buyer or the seller, you know, whether it's a credit or whether it's, you know, something that came up with a loan that's an issue or something during the inspection process. So I think really trying to relate to them and put yourself in their shoes is the, is, is the most important part of being a successful broker and kind of setting yourself apart from others and to develop those relationships with those owners that's what I've focused on. And it's helped me sort of earn that repeat business, right? It's hard. Everybody has buyers. That's what's so funny about our market. And in Oregon, you have disclosed limited agencies. So a lot of brokers are representing buyers and sellers. So it's always harder to get a seller. And to get the repeat sellers who come back to you, I've found is that if you just act with integrity and honor and really sort of put the money and the fee aside, people appreciate that. Yeah. I think my brother kind of was kind of asking to like, you know, back in 
2014 or when you got started, like what sort of, you've gotten to this point now where you've built this good brokerage business, but like it wasn't all just sunshine and butterflies to start out. So kind of like, what did that journey look like in the brokerage field? And I mean, maybe, I mean, my kind of question would be like, what daily activities kind of gave you the best return on your time investment? I mean, as a broker, you don't get paid until like that commission, like in the end. So it's kind of really hard to determine like during that, you know, other six months that you're not having that deal go through or like whatnot, like what is the best return on your time? Sure. Yeah. When I started out with Liz, I had a very modest base salary. I think it was like $30,000 a year. And then I was earning 5% of each commission or something like that. I don't remember the specifics, but what I got into really quickly is just cold calling and you just hit the phones really hard every day. And it doesn't have to be, Hey owner, do you want to sell? Hey owner, do you want to buy? Or, you know, pressuring that way, but just have a conversation with them. And I got into a routine And what I did is I told myself the first three years in brokerage make, I believe it was 15 new calls a day or 15 new contacts a day. And I have a CRM that I use. So you just, you know, when you make those calls, you take notes, you input their info, email, phone, take notes on their building or what they think about the market. And that was a good way to get that call list established, which is the most important thing as a broker, right? You're not emailing, you gotta be on the phones and you gotta be out in the field trying to meet people. With COVID that changed a lot, obviously in the last few years, but that is sort of the strategy I used the first few years to kind of build that up. And it sort of snowballs from there. I mean, and it gets busy really quickly out of nowhere and you're not really expecting it, but it is great to feel that way when you've made these, you know, hundreds of calls a month. And a lot of the people don't want to hear from you. And if they tell you to pound sand, I mean, that's the worst thing that could happen is they tell you to pound sand and you're just like, okay, you move on to the next person. And honestly, I try them back in three or four months, but I try a different approach. Like commercial brokers, not for the faint of heart. And I think most people know that. And it's all about hitting the phones early on. And that's what helped me the most. Yeah. Because I wasn't afraid to... Is I there, wasn't afraid to do that. Is there anything that like you personally like do to deal with that kind of rejection? Because there's a lot of that, right? Like it's like, yeah, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. I write a note usually about that person I called that prospect. And usually <laughs> it's only my own database. So I sort of vent to the notes and say like, <laughs> this person was a complete you know, I won't go into expletives, but (laughs) something that helps me sort of, and you know, everybody needs that. And it's a way to pump yourself up. It's Um, kind of like a little lightening of the situation, just kind of like a little humor or brevity about it. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. I like that a lot. Well, fun stuff. Maybe tell us a little bit, like how was Liz kind of giving you some mentorship? Like, was she like influential in like saying like, Hey, you need to make those 15 contacts a day. Or like, how did you come up with like that number or like, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. We have a really unique situation here. She gave me no training whatsoever. Um, (laughs) So you're just a natural is what you're saying. (laughs) Well, no, but I wasn't initially. The first year I did not do well, guys. And I kind of like reassessed just my career and I'm like, what am I doing? And that's when I kind of came up with my cold call list and what I need to be doing. Liz has been in the business almost 40 years. That's my business partner, Liz Tilbury. And she has repeat loyal clientele already. So like 
for her, she's not making those calls. She didn't give me a lot of direction. I mean, she basically said cold calling is good. I used to do it, but she didn't give me much guidance or a strategy or steps. You can start out with like Marcus and Millichap in Portland and you get all the training in the world. And that works for certain people. For me, I'm pretty self-motivated and self-driven and creative. I was comfortable with the setup with Liz of kind of coming in and finding out my own ways to be successful. And I think at the end of the day, it worked out in my interest better for the type of person I am. I don't really resonate with that boiler room mentality where they put names up on a chalkboard, write down your calls or your prospects. Like that's not my thing. So I use CoStar and some other things and export to Excel. I mean, it's kind of an old school way of doing it. And then I create my own CRM with my prospecting list, but I didn't have a lot of guidance or direction from her. Yeah. Was it just a bunch of trial and error of getting there or I mean, like, yeah, the first certainly thing- there's some iterations, like you're obviously very successful. So I think some of our listeners are kind of in that spot where they, you know, they may want to try commercial brokerage or they may want to try residential brokerage. And like, I think that, you know, whenever someone faces adversity, the steps that they take to kind of overcome it. And like, I mean, for me, I'm listening to you and it really sounds like those first few years were, were tough. Like, I mean, that's just got to be hard facing that from day to day and not knowing what's coming next. Yeah, they were tough. I mean, and we have, just to give you a little idea, I mean, we have, you know, what is it? Five figures of overhead a month, right? Because we have an assistant and rent and stuff to pay. And anyway, so, you know, that was always in the back of my mind. But I mean, I guess the way I overcame some of those obstacles, guys, is I was just, I took really good notes in this platform that I use for prospecting. And I figured out a way to identify what wasn't working. And I put that in writing and it kind of helped me sort of self-reflect on what's not working. So when I make the next call, you know, and it's all about prospecting when you're starting out, you just gotta be on the phones. So when I make the next call, I don't repeat that same mistake, right? I mean, repeating that over and over is the definition of insanity. And <laughs> you learn really quickly, like if people aren't talking and they're hanging up on you pretty quickly, you're not doing something right. And the first year or so that was happening to me more often than it does now. So I just, you know, steady incremental room for improvement and figure out what's not working and just get people talking. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, whether it's talking about their rents or their vacancy or the crazy legislation we have in the state or (laughs) how we don't have enough housing. I mean, there's various ways to get an owner to open up and you kind of like learn to massage that. And it's funny, like you get them talking and it's like, oh, this isn't going towards a sale at all, but they'll come back to you in like three months or out of the blue, they'll mention, oh yeah, let me send you this. I want a broker price opinion. If you just get them to, to talk. Yeah. First. I've heard it described as like, kind of like a cave and like you're in there with a light and like, you're like shining the light on these like kind of crevices and trying to get, you know, just someone to talk a little bit. Yeah. Ben, were there any other brokers during the time when, you know, that may not have made it when you were working with Liz that came in? No, it's only been her and I since I've started. There have been two people who have gone through in a similar position to me with Liz, probably five, 10 years before I started. Two different gentlemen who were here maybe a couple years each. So that is kind of interesting to me, I guess, looking at that. I never thought about that, but 
maybe they didn't have enough guidance. I mean, my setup is not regimented at all. So I think it's not <laughs> the thing apart. Like certain people need to kind of be told what to do or need to have other people in the office. We don't have a big office. There's three of us. It's me and Liz and our like office manager. So I think self-motivated kind of people who can be creative and get in and know what they want to do and have a plan for that every day, you know, we don't have a lot of training heads on. So maybe that's why those last few people, it didn't work out for them long-term. Yeah. I mean, I'm really intrigued, like how with two people before you who weren't able to make successful, how do you think that you made it happen? I think patience is a big thing. You know, Liz is amazing. She's been doing this almost 40 years, but you know, she is a bit older. She's not very tech savvy. She, you know, has her routine and, you know, she's not retired by any means, but she's working a much more flexible schedule than most brokers. And, you know, I think being able to kind of help her with things and handle her like issues that she needs, because she does need help on stuff is, I think the patience that I have with her, maybe not everybody, these other people might've had, but the way I look at it, I'm looking at it in the long game and she's been in the market almost four decades. She went through the savings and loan crisis in like the late eighties. Like, I mean, that's who I'm learning from, right? I mean, she's seen a lot of, she's done wraparound mortgages because interest rates were 15%. I mean, you don't get a lot of people like that anymore. I mean, there's a lot of turnover in this business and I'm looking at it in the long game of like, she's got these third generation clientele who's now has the fourth generation working and I'm closer in age too. So I figure if I'm taking an hour out of my day to spend more time with Liz or help her with things, which can be aggravating at times, like whether it's, you know, her email or phone stuff or pro forma or Excel stuff. I'm happy to help because I think what she's allowing me or giving me in return is a totally fair trade, but I don't think everybody really maybe has that long view. Yeah. Do you think part of your success kind of in this position as well is because you're also a real estate investor, like having that safety net, knowing that like your mortgage is covered and like whether you're successful or not at the, you know, the brokerage business, like you're still kind of taken care of or able to take care of, you know. That definitely helps. But AJ, I didn't have any real estate when I started, but I think, yes, having that insulation now has helped not having to worry about that for sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you started building your portfolio and with starting basically from nothing and student loan debt. Yeah. So you guys already heard the duplex thing when I opened the can a little earlier on that original question. And then, I ended up finding, I mean, I really listened to bigger pockets and I don't listen to that as much anymore, but that gave me a basic knowledge of like how to buy because I was always on the brokerage side and you don't get that like nitty gritty feel when you're just a broker. And then I bought the duplex. I got a feel for what it's like to really own something. And I found a five unit building in Beaverton off market and there was a value add deal and I refied it just over a year after I bought it for a couple hundred thousand over what I bought it and did a cash out refi and then use that to buy an eightplex. So I did this model, the Burr model, the buy, rehab, rent, refi, repeat. And it worked for my first five deals, really. I mean, I literally did that model on the property and then bought a new one with the refi proceeds a year or two after I bought the prior property. So a five plex then changed to an eight unit building in Gladstone. 
and then an 11 unit building in Mount Tabor. And now I'm looking to actually build on that original five unit Beaverton property because it has surplus land that's multifamily zoned for 17 more units. They say in real estate as an investor, you make your money on the buy. You know, you can't, you know, off-market deals are huge, right? So what I've done too, and really helped me to find off-market deals is do these like hard copy mailers. And I have a special font that looks like handwriting and it looks really personal. And that's brought me a couple deals. I know it sounds super cheesy, but it works. It's annoying folding all those papers and stamping the envelopes, but I found a process for, you know, address labels and it can be pretty efficient and that's helped me find deals too. So that's how I kind of built up from two units to almost 30 units in about six years. That's just awesome. So you've actually been successful with direct mailers. AJ and I have always, you know, we haven't really been committed to it. So, you know, we'll send out a mailer ever so often. And we'll be like, ah, no results again. (laughs) So like, how do you use direct mail and how often do you use it? I'm going to reveal all my secrets here, Chris. <sighs> I've done two major mailers and I think they were like maybe 500 envelopes each. And I actually used, I mean, this isn't a secret. I used the bigger pot. There's like a font thing you can use through this bigger pockets website. I forget where it is, what the extension is, but it's a font that looks like I wrote it. It's pretty realistic. And I try to make the letter as personable as possible. And I found I'm a young guy trying to start out my, originally it was Plexus, you know, can I, you know, I want to build a Murphy family Plex buyers is kind of what I put on there. And I just tried to make it personal. And on the first mailing of 500 or so owners, I think I got maybe three or four emails, like two calls and like one response in writing, which isn't much, but one of those turned into an eightplex deal in Gladstone that I bought. And it was a really nice value add property. So I guess I looked at the time I spent on those envelopes, which was maybe, I don't know, five hours, but I bought a building that I could add $300,000 of value to in the first year. Seems like a pretty good return on investment for me. That's a very (laughs) nice ROI. Do you think that being a broker in multifamily has helped you source off-market deals? It has. Yes, it definitely has. It's also been a little bit of a challenge too, because there's sort of a conflict at times and people don't tell you that, but you do have to walk the fine line as a broker of like, you know, when you talk to an owner, are you talking to them to sell or buy? And if, you know, you usually want to disclose right away, you're a licensed broker because there's a lot of weird stuff that goes in our market and wholesalers that are flipping deals. And it's not really ethical in my opinion. So I'm really upfront with owners about, I'm a commercial broker. I sell apartment buildings, but I'm also building up my own portfolio. And, you know, if I'm buying something and having a buyer pay my fee, you know, I usually bring that up and, you know, it's fine as long as you disclose it, but it has been a challenge. But as far as prospecting and selling out mailers I do even call owners at times if I have the time to do it to see if they would potentially consider selling at some point. If it's a property near one that I already own, I'm not afraid to do that. So the brokerage side, it's really helped with that for sure. So one of our struggles with multifamily is just developing relationships in you know the sector to where 
you know, if we put an offer in, even if it's the highest offer for a property, we still might not get it. The offer might be higher than everyone else's. And, you know, there's still situations where kind of not having those relationships or, you know, not being established in the marketplace that it makes it really tough to break into. Do you have any insights kind of like with that? Yeah. I mean, you're totally right, Chris. It's really hard to get a foothold in a market, especially as a buyer. I think the biggest thing you can do as a buyer who wants to compete and be taken seriously by other multifamily brokers is close the deal. Don't tie it up and don't perform because most brokers have an A, B, and C list for buyers. And you know, most of my buyers are in the B list. I'd say like 10% are in the A and then the rest are in the C. And it's such a tight market. Everybody has so many buyers, right? It's very often that the broker represents the buyer and the seller, which is fine. So I would say for you, you know, to the extent you can do very limited due diligence, offer as much earnest money up front as possible, maybe even release the earnest money. I mean, there's different strategies you can go about in your offer to set yourself apart from other buyers. But at the end of the day, I think it's just track record. If you just keep closing the deals you're committing to, you'll be on that kind of A-list to most brokers and you're going to earn that repeat business and hopefully those off-market deals where you're not having to compete and have a bidding war, which is the biggest selling point in a market like Portland, I think, is finding the off-market deals, not the officially listed deals. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Having that track record and just the, you know, I mean, Chris, I got to say, if like we keep putting offers in and they keep seeing us up there, like sooner or later, someone's going to give us a chance. And we've, I mean, Ben, we've closed deals with you and we've closed deals with other brokers. Like we've never come back on one deal. So like we keep building up that track record. And I think it's just continuing in that larger space is going to be really beneficial. Don't you think, Chris? Well, I think Ben kind of hammers home a point is that there's just so many buyers out there. And, you know, if a seller or the listing broker has a relationship with, you know, one of the 15 buyers, you know, it's pretty likely that, you know, that group is going to get the deal. And so I honestly feel like as an investor working with the broker who, is well-established and has those relationships. And then as well, like as the investor as well, to be taken seriously in multifamily, you need to build those relationships as the investor and as a buyer. It's something that when we started out buying single family homes and duplexes and fourplexes, you know, you could be relatively unknown, but to be able to break into 50 or hundred unit apartment complexes, you know, there needs to be some sort of brand, some sort of track record. And, you know, and you need to be working with highly qualified professionals. Definitely. What's also happened is, and you two are seeing this, the syndicators, the institutional capital has gotten smaller and smaller. And these people have huge funds, right? So they can write really strong terms and stuff. So as you guys scale, which I know you will, you're both super successful, you're going to be butting up against that. So just don't let it discourage you because you can make your own way 
for example, you've closed three deals with us and you're a pleasure to work with. When we do another deal together, I mean, one of the first things that's going to come out of my mouth when I'm talking to the seller, our client is, we've closed three really hairy deals with these guys and they perform. And that carries a lot of weight. I mean, versus a buyer that, you know, there's a lot of people just kicking tires out there and looking for a deal. And they're not, you know, they're kind of looksy lose, right? And you guys have put your money where your mouth is and closed on three, I think, you know, deals that had a lot of hurdles with them. So if I have a 50 unit building, that's a nice value add deal that probably has hair on it, which most buyers want right now. I'll feel better about bringing that to you with that track record kind of to share with the owner. Yeah. So what's your advice to someone who doesn't have the track record and doesn't have, you know, the relationships built up quite yet? You know, I would say (laughs) if you're starting out small, like I was, find a really good single family broker that you trust. I mean, the challenge is if you're buying like a duplex to a fourplex and it's on the RMLS or something, it's just so competitive because there's even more buyers, the smaller your deal gets, right? So I'd say my biggest piece of advice is, I guess, is this for a broker or not? Any real estate professional. Yeah. If you want to find the off-market deals that are screaming deal, you just got to hit the phones. And not everybody has that time. You guys run a management company, right? You have a, yeah. like a construction arm. I mean, so you got to fo- realize where your time's best you know, focused and not everybody can do that. But that would be my advice with my experience for finding good deals that have some meat on the bone. Yeah, I know that's, I don't know if that answers <laughs> your question. <laughs> well, you got to buy right. All right. Well, we're getting on towards our time. So why don't we move on to our four, our last four questions? Nice. I will start start us off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? All right. Gosh. I would say my one piece of, to my 25-year-old self. So what was I doing when I was 25? (laughs) (laughs) I was still in appraisal. I would say to not buy a really expensive car. Yeah. Yeah. What's the reasoning behind that? It's a depreciating asset. You buy a brand new, we all know this, but you know, I don't know what it depreciates 20, 30% once you drive it off the lot or maybe not that much, (laughs) but it's a horrible investment. I have a lot of friends who've done it and you know, they work at like, you know, Intel, Nike, some of those types of places and it's fine for them, but I like assets that appreciate over time and yeah. I like it. Well, if you get a loan on it as well, not only are you like paying extra for a depreciating asset, but you're actually paying interest on top of that. And it's just a really tough way to build up assets. My wife thinks I'm crazy because I'm driving a 2016 Volkswagen Golf that's a stick shift, but I've got it paid (laughs) off. So yeah. Great car and the stick shift. That's my hero. All right. Well, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? In elementary school or middle school, I started a, I was young. I started a a curb printing business for like doing addresses for houses on curbs. So we would create like the stencils and we'd go around. I'd literally walk around. We'd hang stuff on doors or knock on doors and say, 
Because a lot of people's address, their address numbers aren't visible that well from the street. So we do it on the little curb where their driveway entrance is. And that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. We've not heard that one before. That is a really cool idea. One lady was running a funeral home. So she was our first client because I think it was important that people knew where they were going for the services. So yeah. 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 Wow. I might have to give that to my cousin. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to ask the next question, which is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? You know, I think the appraisal side of thing is great. I know how to value and underwrite apartment buildings, which is what I now sell. And that has been an amazing start to my career. The brokerage side of learning how to cold call prospect, connect with owners, vibe with owners, get them to open up has helped me as an investor build up my real estate portfolio as well. So that's how I think those three things kind of all come together to sort of, I guess, it's a mutually beneficial relationship between starting out an appraisal, then going to brokerage, and then eventually also becoming sort of a part-time quasi real estate investor. Awesome. And our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? I over-improved a unit in Gladstone and spent about $22,000 on it. It was a gut rehab, it was a two-bedroom, one-bath unit with washer-dryer. And the tenant that we rented it to was a drug addict and a felon from Louisiana. And we had to evict. Luckily, it was in Clackamas County. If it was in Portland, it would have been a whole different story. But the unit was completely destroyed. And I learned screening and meeting the tenant in person is more important than ever. I also used to self-manage, which I no longer do. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tenant screening, that is a very big and unfortunate lesson to learn. I've also learned that the hard way, especially... Everybody in Vestons learned that the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Well, cool. Ben, thank you so much. You're awesome. And just the insights into the multifamily world are so good to get. And you've got such vast knowledge there. So we really appreciate having you on. And yeah, let's do it again. Thanks, guys. Uh, Ben, thanks for coming on. If our audience wants to get a hold of you or anything, what would be a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah. I mean, phone or email is fine. You could just Google Tilbury Ferguson and my contact info is on our website. Perfect. So yeah. Awesome. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.